Take your copy of the scriptures and turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4, we'll be continuing this morning in our series through the letter, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthian church. Let's go to the Lord one more time before we uh, hear from him. Let's go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, our dear Lord, we confess again that uh, you are the one who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days, you have spoken in your Son, in the incarnate word. And we, play, we pray, Lord, that you will... Indeed, open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. Grant, Lord, we pray that we may hear and read and learn and inwardly take in, digest these words. That through the comfort of your holy word and your spirit, we may embrace and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life. Which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. First Corinthians 4, I'll be beginning at verse 6 uh, and reading to the end of the chapter. First uh, Corinthians 4, uh, verse 6. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere, in every church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod 
or with love in a spirit of gentleness. So far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. As we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians uh, this morning, I'd like you to recall uh, that in the first five verses of this chapter, just preceding what we just read, um, Paul has continued, and he does so in this passage this morning, uh, his rebuke, his admonition to the church at Corinth, the Corinthian church. And in those first five verses, uh, recall the Apostle Paul, he has confronted the judges. He's confronted them, those who were wrongly judging ministers, preachers, teachers. And their concept of, ministry, of the ministry of ministers was wrong. And the standards they used to evaluate Exalting, condemning, they were also wrongly based. Having confronted those who judged him and the apostles by worldly, non-biblical standards, Paul goes on to explain and to instruct regarding the need to ground all thinking, all acting, all judging, not in worldly standards, but in God's word alone. God's word alone. And that's the head or the controlling point of this passage. And it's there, right there in verse 6, where it says, don't go beyond what is written. Right? Don't go beyond what is written. And in case you've not made the connection so far, uh, this is one of, I'll point it out for you, this is one of the so-called solo, solas of the Reformation. Right? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. And this indeed is one of the key, uh, uh, the, 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 the chair verses and passages for this doctrine, to not go beyond what is written. And it couldn't be overstated how important and significant this doctrine is. Do not go beyond what is written. Doing so leads to error. Not merely secondary or tertiary parenthetical issues, but the most important issues, issues with eternal consequences. Errors within the church derive from drifting or going beyond, losing the mooring to Scripture, God's Word, and errors outside the church, to be sure. All the cults, right? All the cults go beyond the text of Scripture by adding other teachings or other writings that end up contradicting God's Word. Well, our text this morning is telling us not to go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond what is written. This is what they are to learn. The Corinthians were doing just that, right? They were going beyond what was written. They were not loving. They were not tethered and grounded in God's word and in God's ways. They were judging wrongly. They were boasting. They were prideful. They were discounting Paul. They were rejecting Paul and the apostles and his teaching and the teaching of the other apostles rather than learning from him and imitating him, following him as he follows their Lord. We see here this key problem. We see it in the form of a contrast in this text as Paul lays it out. And the contrast is pride versus humility. Pride versus humility. And this is important even for us, brothers and sisters, because we too, right? we too, even in subtle ways, we can fall into the same error of boasting, being prideful, not humble, not resting and relying in and upon Christ, not believing, not trusting, not grounded in God's Word, 
being informed by the world, by the culture, by our own hearts, or others' standards and expectations. This is something that we all face, uh, as I said, sometimes overtly, but very often in subtle ways. And so the word from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church is the same word to you here this morning. It's the same word to us. We must not go beyond God's word. We must follow Christ. We must be imitators of the Lord. We must believe this word to us. We must ground our lives and our all in Him and what He's told us. So for the main point of this section of this sermon, we must learn and remember and be refreshed and be reminded to not go beyond what is written. We see throughout God's word these themes. We see throughout God's word this issue of humility, this characteristic of humility. We see that it is a trait all the way down through redemptive history as we look at our words. Uh, Those whom God chooses and uses for his sovereign purposes. Uh, This is not a shock to us, right, to be told that the Lord uses. This is a laudable uh, for his glory, those who are humble. Right? Think throughout history, uh, what do we see? And I'll give you a number of verses. I don't want you to turn to, turn to these verses, um, but perhaps you could write them down. I'll read them to see kind of a survey of, of this reality in Scripture. Right? Think of Genesis. Think back to Genesis uh, and Abraham. Right? Abraham, Genesis 18.27. It says, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord I who am but dust and ashes. Think of Jacob. Genesis 32.10 says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I am not worth the least of this. Or think of Moses, right? the great redeemer of the Old Testament. The great figure, the greatest figure in the Old Testament. Moses in Exodus 3 Verse 11, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go before Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel up out of Egypt? Then we move into the New Testament. Think of John the Baptist. Matthew 3, verse 14, it says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, that is Jesus. And do you come to me? He's aghast. John 1, 27 says, Even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. We move on to the Apostle Peter. The humility of the servants of the Lord. Luke 5, 8 says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Or the Apostle Paul himself in Acts 20, just as a sampling, he says this in verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears. And then 2 Corinthians 12, 10, For the sake of Christ, and I am content in what? He says, in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Chapter 3, verse 5 of that same book, 2 Corinthians says, now that, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves 
to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Right? We are not sufficient. It comes from the Lord. In Ephesians 3, 8 says, To me, then, I am the very least of all the saints. The very least of all the saints. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. And we survey and we could multiply these verses and these examples, but of course the greatest example of this is our Lord Himself, the Lord Jesus. Recall in Matthew verse 11, chapter 11, at the end of the chapter He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll remember Philippians chapter 2, the Carmen Christi as it's referred to. This song, this hymn to Christ as God. This is speaking of the preeminent humility of the Lord. The greatest example of humility in history. Philippians 2, 7, but he made himself, Jesus, made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's the humiliation of the Lord. So all these examples... These are, these are the opposite of what the Corinthians were doing. The way they were thinking, the way they were grounded, and the way that they were acting and expressing themselves was not in humility. The Corinthians' lack of love and humility is shown in what? In their pride, in their boasting. And this problem of pride and being puffed up and boasting comes, comes up again and again in the letters to the Corinthians. They gloried, they boasted, they were puffed up, they were vain. Pride, you'll remember, is ancient. Right? It's perhaps the foundational sin in the history of mankind, of the world. Right? Pridefully setting our own will against God's is rebellion. It's a rebellion against God. Indeed, recall Adam in the garden. Right? His attempt at autonomy, a law unto himself, was manifested in exactly this thing. And so the Corinthians to whom Paul were writing were proud. They were proud and they were boasting. They were proud of their wisdom and they were proud of their teachers. Paul has just called them out on this in the verses that we uh, mentioned earlier, verses 1 to 5. Paul has called them out. They were wrongly grounding themselves. They were wrongly grounded in human wisdom and they were wrongly exalting human teachers. And what was the result of all of this? Well, it's what Paul starts with in chapter 1. Divisions, factions, party loyalty. They had a wrong assessment, the wrong judging of ministers, of who they were and what they were. The concern should have been for the Lord, servants of Christ, of His Word. Not themselves or man's wisdom. Not grounded in man's wisdom, the wisdom of this age. It results in the consequences of this age. Paul had to confront the judges. And now he goes on in our text this morning, 6 to 21, to confront the boasters, those who were boasting. In verses 6 to 13, he confronts the boasters. And then he counsels or consoles his children in verses 14 to 17. And then finally, in verses 18 to 21, he cautions the rejectors, those who are rejecting him and his teaching, and therefore rejecting the Lord and the Lord's teaching. So he confronts the boasters, he counsels his children, and he cautions the rejectors. Confronts the boasters, 
point number one, uh, in this confrontation, Paul comes at them in a number of ways. Uh, and in doing so, he gives this stark contrast again between the Corinthians boasting their pride and the apostles' humility. Paul does this to convict them and to teach them what their attitude indeed should be. Look again at verse 6. 1 Corinthians 4 says, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you be puffed up in favor of one, of, uh, one against another. But this is to be their anchor, and it's to be our anchor in doctrine and in life, the Word of God. It is always and only to be our anchor, the Word of God. So again, why? Why does he say, I've applied these things to learn not to go beyond what is written? Right? He says that, that you may not be, uh, I'm sorry, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Right? And when he says that phrase there, I have applied all these things, of course he's referring to what he's been talking about in the stream of his argument from, verses, uh, from, from chapter 3, verse 5 and onward about himself and about Apollos. In other words, what he's telling them he says, I've told you about behavior in Christ's church. I've told you about acting and how you are to conduct yourselves and about ministers and teachers and leaders. See them rightly and see them from a right foundation grounded in the right thing. Don't exalt, don't over-exalt them. Your minister is not to be a guru. He's not to be exalted up in human terms or pitted against another faithful teacher. He's a minister, a servant of Christ, a servant of his word, we saw last time. A slave to it. Remember, an under-rower is the word. An under-rower. Paul says to them, you're not to be exalted one under-rower, one servant against another. And why is that? I look back at chapter 22, I'm sorry, verse 22 of chapter 3. So let no one boast in man, for all things are yours. <laughs> all things are yours. Verse 21, chapter 3, 21. All things are yours. What are you boasting about? Don't put them up against another. They're all yours. They're gifts from the Lord to you. Of course, unity is an important goal. It's an important uh, aspect for God's people. And the enemy of God's people, our enemy, is perfectly pleased with divisions, with dividing the church. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, I've told you these things so that what I've been saying will be clear. We are an example for you. And in this situation, he tells them not to go beyond, to not go beyond what is written. And again, why? That they not be puffed up in favor of one against another. Right? Again, Satan is pleased with divisions in the church. He's pleased. And so what's the corrective to these unhealthy, inappropriate divisions that were going on. The corrective is, of course, a firm grounding in God's Word, a firm anchor tethered to God's Word. This is the corrective to those sinful factions and divisions that were going on and manifesting themselves and tearing the church apart there. Stop going beyond Scripture. Stop being puffed up, he tells them. And the way the, the, the grammar uh, is constructed uh, there, it means not only to stop this current expression that's going on, put out this fire that's going on, stop being puffed up, but it's, the, the tense of the verb is present, meaning 
to never do it, right? At no time ever. Do not be puffed up. And again, the way the word is built, it's passive. They are being puffed up. Why? Because they're going beyond scripture. And this is what happens when you do that. They were inflating one over the other. And so pride is destructive in many ways. Paul will have none of it. And this is an example of the Corinthians. They're saying, I'm better than you. Right? Me and who I follow are better than you. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm for me and my party, and therefore I'm against you and your party, you see. And, and let's be honest, this is natural for us in our flesh. Right? It's natural for us to do so. But it's nevertheless wicked. It's a sinful thing. A sinful thing. What does the Lord desire of us, dear Christians? And he's told us, hasn't he? And later in this same letter, in chapter 10, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so Paul goes on in his discussion, and beginning of verse 7, he issues a series of three questions. Right? These are rhetorical questions. You all know what those are. Uh, rhetorical questions uh, designed with an obvious answer to emphasize, to make a point of what he's trying to say. And he says in verse 7, Who sees any difference in you? One translation has it. Who concedes any superiority to you? Or who regards you as superior? And the obvious answer is what? No one. No one. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? The intended answer is nothing. Nothing. And that's a very humbling thing in and of itself, is it not? It's a humbling word, especially for us who think that we can control everything in our lives, every aspect of our life. Right? What ultimately is in our hands? Right? The time of our birth? No. The time of our second birth? No. The times of those significant moments and providences in our lives? The time of our departure? None of it is in our hands. In the context of our discussion of ministers that Paul has been laying out here, think of the providence and the plan of God for his people. Think of Ephesians chapter 4. Remember way back when we studied Ephesians. It tells us that God has given gifts to His church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. The church doesn't gift itself. The church doesn't give to itself. These are God-given gifts to the church, ordained by the Lord to His church for their good. So what do you have that you didn't receive, Paul asks? Obviously, it's nothing. And then the third question, he says, if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? And clearly, there is nothing to be prideful about. There's nothing to be boasting about here. They didn't earn it. They, didn't receive, uh, they received it. Therefore, there's no place for pride. Think for a moment about that doctrine, that truth, that teaching upon which it has been said the church turns. At the doctrine of justification. Think of the freedom 
of justification. The freedom that, that affords you as Christ's dear people. This is important because, you know, you think about it and, and that to which you look is your God, your idol, which you worship. Is it the Lord and what He's done in your life or is it something else? You, dear Christian, right, again, receive this as a gift. You, brothers and sisters, are free from sin as you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. You're free. You're free from sin. You're free from merits. You're free from relying on your own merits. That's a glorious truth of which you should rejoice. If Christ has set you free, you're free indeed. You're free indeed. There's no place for pride. No pride. No place for it. Uh, Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 2, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So we see Paul here confronting boasters. And he's doing so with a direct instruction. He's doing so with rhetorical questions. And then in verse 8, he does so with sarcasm. He uses sarcasm. One of the greatest gifts that God gave to his people. um, Some of which have an extra measure of gifting in that that, uh, category. But sarcasm used for a, for a point, right? It's used to, to make a point, to emphasize. And he says in verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Right? Already you have all you want. Right? That word, have all you want, uh, it's translated elsewhere as already filled. You are already full. You are already satisfied. It's the word that's used of being satiated, like after eating. Already you are full, you're already satiated, Paul is saying. It's the word in Matthew uh, where he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. They shall be fulled. Filled, I think, indeed, is the, uh, the authorized version translation. But the Corinthians thought that they were already full. They thought they had all they needed and all that they wanted. And notice how that starts there. It says already, right? This this temporal indicator, already. That was their mindset. We're complete. We are full. And this is repeated in that next verse where it says, already you have become rich. Filled and rich. And this is a dangerous mindset. We see it elsewhere in our Bibles. Indeed, our New Testament reading from Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea uh, hits on this very thing. Again, I will read Revelation 3, starting at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Right? Do you see what he's saying? It's the same thing that's going on with the Corinthians. They're self-deceived. They don't realize. They are blinded. They are not full. They are not rich. They are in need. They are pitiable. So Paul uses this sarcasm to emphasize that very thing. They are not rich. They are not reigning. And then in verse 9, we see the contrast to this boasting, prideful, 
attitude and demeanor and outcome of the, of the, the Corinthians, we see the contrast with the apostles' humility, starting in verse 9. Notice Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. Spectacle. What is not glasses? What does spectacle mean? Have you thought about that? There's a uh, there's a context. There's a meaning behind what that means. And at the time, victorious generals of Rome, for instance, would come in to the city, procession through the streets with their soldiers. It would be called a procession of triumph or a triumphal procession. This was to show off, of course, the troops. Right, all the soldiers, to demonstrate the general's accomplishments in battle. And at the end of that train, at the end of the procession or the parade, were the captives. Right? Captives. And this triumph would parade into the streets in a display of power and victory. And then the captives would come in at the end. And what was their fate? Right? What was their fate? It was death. It was a death sentence. They'd be chained together, and chained together they would face the beasts in the arena. And the beasts would defeat them. They would maul them and devour them. And there's this saying that would be said uh, as we read it in Roman historians, um, and apologies to the band ACDC, it's not for those about to rock we salute you. It's for those about to die we salute you. That was the phrase. That's what was expressed to them. For those about to die... We salute you. And the spectacle referred to these death-sentenced captives. Paul says, that's us. That's who we are. We're the spectacles. You are the generals, prideful, in this prideful parade, displaying your greatness. But we're this little band of chained captives bound for death. You're the heroes. We're the weak spectacles. You are celebrated. We are merely here as under rowers to serve and to die for the Lord. An old paraphrase of this verse from an old translation says this, or an old paraphrase. It captures this sentiment. It says, For it seemed to me that God means us apostles to come in at the very end like doomed gladiators in the arena. We are made a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. That's it, right? They come in at the end. That's who we are, like doomed gladiators. There's pride versus humility on display in contrast here. In the Gospels, you'll recall Jesus. He responds to a question that comes to him about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Right? A prideful question, intent behind the motive to be sure. What does he say, do you remember? Whoever will be first must be last. Must be last and the servant of all. And that's the pattern we've discussed and we've seen so often again and again. The pattern, right? Suffering and then glory. First the cross and then the crown. Humiliation and then exaltation. Is that the truth that you can embrace, brothers and sisters? Is that a truth that you can embrace and rejoice in? Even that pattern, from worldly standards, we don't like this. It's very uncomfortable for us. We don't want the suffering. We don't want the cross. We don't want humiliation. 
But that's the pattern of our Savior, and it will be the pattern of our lives as well. It's what's promised to us. In our flesh, we want not to suffer. We want not to endure. Let alone rejoice through it, Paul tells us. But that is your calling, dear Christian. It's what he's called you to. Indeed, it is a work of the Spirit. All the while remembering the glory, right? To be revealed in the glory, right? In the crown, in the exaltation. Is what? It is incomparable to that which we endure in this life. It is beyond comprehension. It is beyond imagination. Praise God, brothers and sisters, that it is. That is the promise to you from God's Word. From His Word. He has established this glorious pattern. And He cares for us through it. It is for us to what? To trust Him. To believe Him. To delight in His perfect plan and His promise. So I encourage you to do just that. So Paul goes on in verse 10 and he uh, uses another series of words, descriptors, uh, comparing them, he and the apostles, with these prideful Corinthians. And he says, we are fools for Christ's sakes, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And here again, we, we're back to the worldly assessments, right? The worldly assessments. To them, to the world, they are fools, Paul says. Remember, he's already said this in chapter 1. Right? This isn't new language. It's very familiar with Paul. The preaching of the cross, he says, in chapter 1 is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness to those who are perishing. And then we go to verse 11, and we see Paul's common two-age distinction, the distinction between this age and the age to come. Uh, and he says, to this present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless, we are, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Strong language from Paul. We read these things and we can hardly relate to them. I fear that so many of us are so grounded in this world. True, eternal things are such a fog to us. It's hard to relate but we see here in Paul's teaching, right, the next time you hear the teaching that teaches that we are to have our best life now, think of this passage. Right? Think of verses 11 to 13. Right? Did Paul have his best life now? This, is a, this reveals the problem of that erroneous theology. This age, brothers and sisters, this hour doesn't display or evidence the immeasurable, unfathomable glory of the age to come. It cannot. It does not. And it will not. That time when our true best life is promised. To the present hour, Paul says, he says what? We hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted. That means beat with fists. Right? Not a word we use very often. Poorly dressed, hunger, thirst, beaten, homeless, he says. And what is the response? What is their response to these, these, these things? We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are, and then he says it, 
like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And so this is obviously the exact contrary to the teaching that says that this here and now is our best life. Don't ever believe that, brothers and sisters. Oh, how you diminish and water down and make of nothing the glory that is to come. If you think that this, anything in this world could be your best life now. This is not our best life. How pathetic and measly it is in comparison with the glory to be revealed. And the fact is that when we align ourselves with the truth, uh, we face opposition. Right? You stand for nothing, you have no conflicts. Right? We are to ground ourselves in God's word, to not go beyond what is written. And when you take a stand for something, you'll face opposition. You've chosen a side. You should expect it, and you should embrace it. Because when you do so, you, you declare war on the other side. And let's not forget that Christ tells us in his teaching in Luke and in Matthew about hungering and thirsting. And what is his promise to us? Right? It's that promise of glory. It's that eschatological, right? that consummate promise. They shall be satisfied. Right? They shall be safe and at peace, not homeless, but dwelling in glory before the face of God for all of eternity. Right? Rejoice in faith, dear Christians. This is the promise to you as well. The promises of our Savior, they still hold true for each one of you who embrace Him as your Savior. Delight in them. Be comforted by them. So Paul confronts the boasters. He confronts them with direct instruction, with rhetorical questions, and then with sarcasm in verse 8 and following, and then with a direct comparison between the worldly, prideful, uh, pride of the Corinthians and the godly humility of the apostles. We have to remember when Paul is saying these things, when he's admonishing and chastising them, he's not grumbling or complaining. Right? He's not complaining about that state. He's telling them the matter of fact of what thing, how things are. And he's saying that the preaching of the gospel has not brought fortune and fame and success and praise as the world measures those things. What Paul has endured particularly in Ephesus where he's writing this letter from, was truly awful. And his reality of weakness and and lacking in and of himself enabled him to preach the cross for what it was, right? Not Not foolishness, but the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So he can't rely on his own abilities. From a worldly standing, they are weak, they are feeble, they are of nothing. And so he's left alone to what? To trust in the power of God. Therefore, when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is manifested through his weakness. The number of things that Paul mentions that he had to endure are truly remarkable. He's felt like a captive brought into the arena to be mocked and thrown to the animals. He's been put on display for the whole world to watch. The world and to men and angels. His gospel is considered utter foolishness to the world. He is weak. He is dishonored. While the Corinthians Corinthians see themselves as wise, as strong, as honored for behaving like pagans while still using the wisdom of this age to make sense of and to analyze heavenly things. 
Paul has suffered. He suffered physically. He suffered great uh, economic loss and challenge. He's hungry. He's homeless. He's been often brutalized, as we read about uh, elsewhere. And he works as hard as he can, humanly possible, to bless those who curse him. Right? The teaching of Christ, love your enemies. Right? Paul is living this out. He sought to bless those who curse him, while at the same time enduring persecution to which the Lord has called him. He's slandered. He doesn't respond with slander. Paul's regarded as someone to be uh, like trash, to be swept away as garbage so that the world will be rid of him, be free from him and this foolish message of a Savior who died for his people. Paul is regarded, as we've seen, by both Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, as contemptible. There are some who think that getting rid of him and of this message would be an asset, a benefit. They'd be doing the world a favor by getting rid of him. And so we see this gap, this gap between the Corinthian self-estimation, full, rich, reigning, kingly, and the reality faced by Paul, severe persecution and want. And this contrast could not be greater. To avoid the persecution brought by Paul, which was, by the way, a byproduct of their worldly ways, right? They're avoiding Paul's persecution and the things that he went through. The Corinthians, in doing so, are making what? Making peace with the world. So Paul appeals to them not to see things from their distorted perspective, but from the reality that he sees it, grounded in the Word of God. So Paul confronts these boasters, and he goes on to warn or to counsel them in the next section, all the while exhorting them to learn about the kingdom of God which comes from the power of the Holy Spirit, not through the flattering speech of sinful men and women. So verses 14 and 17, we go on and he consoles or he counsels children, right? There's a distinct change here in verse 14 that we see from what's gone on before. There's a change. And Paul moves from this confrontation, confronting them, to consoling them as children. Right? Look at the, the language that he uses. He's rebuked them. Now he's using this tender and affectionate language to the Corinthians. He knows them. He cares for these people. Even though their, uh, their actions and the way that things that they are doing are driving him crazy. And he grieves over it. He has great concern for them. And though he's angry with them, he says in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Right? Very tender and affectionate language he's using. So his purpose and his goal here isn't ultimately to shame them, but to admonish them of the consequences of what they're doing, this immature behavior. And like a tender father, though a father who is firm in doing his job to a disobedient child, He says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They may have had many teachers. The word there is pedagogue. We get the word pedagogue in English from. You have many, you have 10,000 pedagogues. But they have only one father in the faith. It's Paul. Paul isn't just this heavy figure coming down to bring the hammer on them. 
or to make them comply. He is a firm father, but he's a loving father, disciplining them in love. He was the one who first preached the gospel to them, the one whom God used to lead them to Christ. And it's through this glorious message, the message that Christ's death is sufficient to save sinners, it's through that that Paul became their spiritual father. So Paul can urge the Corinthians to imitate him. Paul doesn't mean here that they should uh, stop all these party allegiances and, and now follow him as the true leader. It's not what he's saying. Rather, they should imitate him by making sure that everything that they do is done in light of the gospel, in light of the age to come. They must move on to maturity. They must leave behind the thinking and the acting of this present age, of this world. Because he can't come to them in person. He's prevented providentially. Paul sends someone to do that very thing. Verse 17, that is why I said to you, I sent to you Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Right? We don't know a lot about this visit uh, of Timothy to the Corinthian church. But obviously Paul has every confidence in this young man and, and Timothy. Um, and he's very comfortable uh, with his work and what he, his benefit, his blessing he will be uh, to the Corinthians. And what does Timothy do? Paul says, Timothy, I'm sending him to you and he will testify to you. I'm not treating you any different or expecting or demanding anything different from you than I do any other church. I'm focused on the same thing in all the churches, the preaching of Christ crucified. So Timothy can tell them, this is how Paul deals with uh, any other church in the same way. He's not treating the Corinthians unfairly is the point. And Timothy will indeed confirm this. He'll confirm that Paul is willing to come to them when he's able to do so. And this is something that could potentially be a problem for the Corinthians, given their attitude and their lack of response, potential lack of response. And so Paul moves uh, quickly back again um, to the third point here in verses 18 to 21. He goes from confronting the boasters to counseling children and now to cautioning rejectors, right? Cautioning those who reject him in his teaching, the teaching of Scripture. And it's a problem because Paul's authority is not Paul's authority, it's authority given him by the Lord, right? It's of God, it's not of self. And so rejecting Paul is rejecting God's will for them. He says, some of you, in verse 18, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Some in the congregation are puffed up, either telling others that Paul would not come, or acting as though he is not going to come, and deal with the issues there. Right? Their, their, their attitude is, Paul doesn't care about us enough to come. Why, right? Why shouldn't we follow someone else? But verse 19 shows that this is absolutely not the case. He says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And surely Paul desires to return to Corinth. But the Lord has other plans for him. And again, providentially, he, he is prohibited. And so he sends Timothy. But one thing is certain from what we read here. And that is that the Corinthians there, the immature, the troublemakers there in Corinth... They're all talk. 
They're all talk. There's no power there. They have no power. The power of God is not revealed in, in sheer human opinion. The power of God is revealed in the gospel, bringing the dead to life through the message of the cross. In verse 20, he says, For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. The kingdom of God is the rule of God, brothers and sisters. It's shown clear, it's, it's made known, it's revealed in person and work of Jesus Christ. When the kingdom comes, and it has, we know because the king has come. When it comes, the power of God is displayed. How? What does the scripture say? It's displayed in that the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the unclean are healed, and even the worst of sinners like you and I are forgiven. The kingdom of God is not in any way connected to this present evil age. Rather, it comes with power because it is what? It is an inbreaking, a manifestation, a display of the age to come. So Paul ends this rebuke, this chastisement, by giving the Corinthians a very clear choice. And he says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? If the Corinthians move on, they respond well, and they act in a mature way, Paul can come to them like a father, right? Some of you parents would want to go and visit your children in love and expectation. But if they continue in this prideful boasting, this worldly grounded nonsense that they're going on, these divisions, Paul will come with a different posture. Right? He will come, he must exercise discipline over disobedient children. The choice is up to the Corinthians, right? What does he say? Will it be a whip or a gentle spirit? And for us, dear believers, think for a moment about the macro picture, the big picture of this admonition that we're hearing from Paul this morning. Think of what God is concerned to convey to us here this morning for you, for your life. Much could be said from this text, and much has been said, but one thing that I'd like to show that's related to this is how we think about our very lives. Again, fundamentally, the point is we're not to go beyond what is written, right? That is the Word of God. It's something that we all need to embrace and cling to. Something I'm sure most of you attempt to do is what we mentioned earlier, right? That we are saved by grace alone. It's a work of God that no one should boast. We do not merit anything to our salvation. These are not new words to you all. What a liberating and freeing and monumental truth that that is that you do indeed need to again remember and embrace. We were saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But as we close, I want you to think for a moment. For a moment of how you might just hijack that truth, right? Even unawares, even not realizing it. Sometimes when we affirm this, and then go forward and think that by our sinning, we shipwreck our salvation. Right? And I want you to see how this is, this is it's kind of the similar error, right? You say, yes, I'm saved by grace alone. No merit allowed in my salvation. And then somehow, maybe not even thinking about it, 
you betray that thinking by affirming the opposite. Right? Sometimes what I mean is we can say, we can affirm that truth and then think in reality, but my merits, my demerit, by that I can affect my damnation or my ongoing bondage to sin. Right? We think, yes, I'm stable before the Lord, nothing to do on my own. But then we think, but I can wreck that with my behavior. It's the same error, the different side of the, of the pole. So you can earn, right, you can, if you cannot earn your salvation, that's easy to affirm, you can neither earn your condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Right? Have you thought about that? It's important to remember this. You reflected on that truth. And if you're not, I beg you, dear believer, submit to the teaching of Scripture that you cannot earn your way to God, nor can you lose your way in God, from God, if He has rescued you in the first place. place. And remember those words, brothers and sisters. Romans 8, chapter 1. Powerful. Memorizing. Speaks to this very issue. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's glorious. Isn't it glorious? Are you in Christ Jesus? Is this true of you here this morning? If it is so, dear Christian, there's no condemnation for you. Not from the outside world, not from the devil himself, not from your own heart. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let us remember this in all of our lives. Let us remember this in a powerful way that transform, uh, our, transforms our living and our loving and our doing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us remember and believe and trust and obey and have faith. This is our life before our precious Savior and before our neighbor whom we are entrusted and commanded to love as well. Let us be always corrected and ever challenged by His holy, precious, and perfect Word that He's left for us. And let us strive to be alert and aware and to seek His Word and seek that Word's grounding in all that we do and to indeed never go beyond what is written. Amen.